0: handout. Uh, Did you get one when you came in? If you didn't, uh, they're on the table back there, and some handy dandy assistants will go get those. There we go. I made 80 of them, and thanks to Brother Tim for filling in while I was gone, and I know he covered Lesson 3 and 4. And quite frankly, I was jealous of Lesson 4, that he got an opportunity to, to go over that one with you, because I, I, it's really like the center of the nut of the, uh, of the study. Um, interpretation. Everybody get a copy of that? Yep, some right over here. Need one? My favorite part of lesson four is that little chart that's in there. The relationship between interpretation, principles, application, and implementation. And the reason uh, I, I like it, it was this one, if you remember, did you get that last week? The reason that I like it so much is because I think it actually visually explains one of the issues that 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 can take place if you, you don't properly handle Scripture and no, no hermeneutics. Um, there's one interpretation, and then there a number of principles that come out of that interpretation. You probably heard one interpretation, many applications. And so what will happen is is someone will take a principle that's an accurate principle. um, And it's a principle that comes out of the interpretation, or they'll take an application that might be the accurate application or an appropriate application. And then they end up making that the meaning of the text. And whenever you do that, then you now have another set of principles and another set of applications. And that's where the problem, you know, breaks down. But I have, as we've moved through this, this study uh, of uh, hermeneutics, how exegesis relates to exposition, you know, the principles of hermeneutics are the tools and the methods and the rules used to arrive at an accurate interpretation, the rules of the game, if you will. And then we talked about application of of those principles. Now you're playing the game. That's exegesis, the process of applying hermeneutics to find out what the text says and therefore what it means. And then exegesis gathers all of that information together. If you just come to the pulpit and dump your exegesis, then you're you're not being a, a very good preacher or teacher. Exegesis accumulates... This information from the text, and then that's communicated, which is then the exposition, the clear communication of meaning, purpose, principles, application, or interpretation, um, and then the implications of the you know, of, of the text. So today or tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to move into lesson five. And, and you've already looked at it. You know it's the title is How to Study Parables. So We've talked about hermeneutics, what they are, the tools that you need, the process, here's the tools, here's what it's called when you apply the tools, here's your goal and exposition. Now we're going to talk about some specific applications of, of hermeneutics, like interpreting parables tonight, then interpreting narrative or story, that'll be very significant because there's a lot of error that comes out of people utilizing narrative as prescriptive. Uh, The book of Acts and Pentecostalism uses the stories of the book of Acts in order to make something normative. When all the narrative is doing is just telling you it happened. It never tells you go do this or go replicate this. It just happened. And then we'll also look at prophecy and some other things. But tonight is how to study parables. So if you look at your first page there, what is a parable? everybody's probably read parables. You probably like parables. Um, I've heard people actually even use wrongly the concept of parables that Jesus used parables uh, that that the way you're supposed to preach is to make it simple like that. Always use object lessons and because that's the way Jesus preached and when they when they do that, they actually leave out that that passage in mark where Jesus says he's telling people parables because the mysteries of the kingdom are hidden from them, so he's actually using parables to conceal the truth. Um, but parable actually is a word that means to come alongside or lay alongside or to compare. It's to compare and contrast something known and unknown. So like the, the parable of the, of the soils... An agricultural society, everyone understands the idea of sowing and, and, and reaping. And so it's taking something known and it's using something known in order to communicate something that's unknown. And a lot of the parables that Jesus uses is, is to reveal the mystery of the, the kingdom of heaven, the, the, the mystery of the, the gospel of the kingdom. And, the, and a mystery is not like uh you know, Nancy Drew or whatever, whoever the person that does mysteries now today. I just dated myself. I, I know that, but um, it's not like something uh, I, I got to go search for it. A, a mystery in the New Testament is something that was not revealed in the Old, and so in the New Testament, the the mystery is being is being manifest. It's it's being revealed, and so Jesus uses the parables in order to. Uh, to, to do that. So a parable is a story which could really happen, and it's designed to teach a specific spiritual truth, and is usually, if not always, related to the kingdom of God. Um, or, as I said, to, to reveal people who are rejecting Christ. Um, in the Gospel of Mark, when Jesus gives the parables of the, of the soils, the disciples ask him, why are you speaking in parables? And um, he says, because it's, it's been given to you to know the mysteries of, of the kingdom and not to them. Um, so what are, how do we know a parable whenever, we, whenever we, we see one? Well, here are some common characteristics or some qualities of, of parables. Look at A. Sometimes they come in sets. And they have a repetitious build-up. Open your Bibles to Luke 15, 1 through 32. We'll probably be doing this a little bit tonight. Luke 15, 1 through 32. You're obviously always practicing the other principles. Your context, bar context, context, context. And here you are in the Gospel of Luke. And one of the things that you'll notice about parables is is, is they often come in sets. And they have a repetitious build-up. So Luke 15, you have three famous parables about things that were lost and then found. And the first parable is the parable of the, the lost sheep in verse... Verse one through thirty-two. Verse three. Look at verse three. So he told them this parable, saying, "What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he found it, he, he, he lays it or lays it on on his shoulders, rejoicing." And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Then the next parable, it's also something that's lost. Verse 8. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins? Now, what's the difference between the first parable and the second parable? How many sheep? There's a hundred, right? He goes after the one, so there's hundred. He leaves ninety-nine, he goes after the one. And now she has ten silver coins. So you're going to lose one of a hundred, and now she loses one of ten. So it's very significant. It's increasing in in, in buildup. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she's found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me. For I found a coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And now here is another parable. Notice how it increases. Verse 11. And he said a man had two sons. So you go from 100 to 10 to 2. And the younger said to his father... And also notice that, you know this and we won't read it all, but it, this one's a lot longer, isn't it? A lot more detailed. It, it's the, the primary one of the, of the three, but it's a buildup, And they all have the exact same purpose, exact same idea or concept behind them. Um, Matthew 24, uh, 32 through 41 or Matthew 25, 1 through 30, the, the parable of the fig tree, the ten virgins and the, and the talents, they all have to do with being ready for Jesus' return. So there's three of them, parable of the fig tree, parable of the ten virgins, parable of the talents. They all have to do with the same idea, being ready for the return of, of Christ. So, so sometimes they come in sets. Sometimes they also provide a sharp contrast. So, so they won't have like three that will build in intensity, but they'll, they'll, they'll contrast things, They're, they'll compare things. So uh, turn to Matthew 25, uh, 1 through 13. Here's the parable of the ten virgins. Matthew 25, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be compared to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five of them were prudent. For when the foolish ones, I'm going to describe their foolishness. When the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them But the prudent took oil in flasks along with their lamps. And now here's the the issue that comes. Now when the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And then all the virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish then said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. And the prudent said, No, there will not be enough for us. You, too, go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. And later the other virgins, the foolish ones, also came along saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. And he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then. For you do not know the day or the hour, obviously, of the coming of Christ. So there's a contrast. Foolish virgins, wise virgins. Um, Matthew 21, you don't have to turn there. was the parable of the two sons. Um, where one is, both are given the same command. One says, I won't do it, and then he decides to do it. And the other one says, I will do it, and then he doesn't do it. Sometimes, though, parables, the main characters or themes are presented in threes. So you've got the sets the sheep, the coin, the sons, the fig tree, the ten virgins, the talent. Sometimes there's a contrast there to compare and contrast things. And then sometimes one parable will present, it'll be the same, same story with three different ideas, like the three passers by, then the Good Samaritan story in Luke. Luke 10. We'll look at Luke 10. Probably very familiar, but we'll look at it. Luke 10 30. And notice how this starts. We'll get into this in a minute, how to interpret them. Jesus replied and said, So there's something that comes before that, isn't there? Jesus replied and said, A man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. So there's the the context. There's the story. That's what happened. And by chance, a priest, number one, was going uh, going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, number two, also when he came by, passed by and saw him on the other side. But a Samaritan, number three, who was on a journey came up to him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds and pouring oil and wine on them. He put him on his own beast and brought him to the inn and take care of him. And that's why we should have open borders and take care of all of the immigrants, right? That's the way that it goes. I mean, you should take care of people that come in need, but taking a parable like that and then making some immediate personal application. is You can take the word and make it say whatever it says, like Luther this morning. What he understood about the gospel came whenever he learned the context of of Romans 1, 16, and and 17. So here are the, the main characters. There are three of them, but there's still a contrast, isn't there? The Samaritan, who was despised, is contrasted with the priest and the Levite who was... So there's a contrast here, but there's they're presented in threes. You could go to Matthew 21, the parable of the landowner. There's the first group of slaves, the second group, a larger group, and then finally he sends his son, right? So sometimes the main characters are, are presented. Look at D. We're looking at just qualities of parables. What, what are parables and... What are some of the the natural qualities of them? Parables were told in the midst of a living encounter to meet a need of a specific situation or problem. That's why I just pointed out, like in the Good Samaritan, Jesus replied and said, I mean, there's something going on, and he's using this parable to, to teach or to deal with something. So it's very important to discover why the parable was given because if you don't understand why the parable was given, then you can take it and twist it and be unfaithful to the Scriptures. Because it will help you then determine if your interpretation matches the reason. So when you go back and you interpret the parable, I think the parable means this. If that doesn't match the reason that the parable was given, you're wrong. Because that's the reason the parable was given, to answer a question or to deal with a deal with a specific problem. And so... The example that's given here in Matthew 13, 2. And a great multitude gathered to him, and so that he got in the boat, and the whole multitude was standing on the beach. So there's a great multitude gathered, and then Jesus gives them the parables of the soils. Or Matthew 18. Turn over to Matthew 18, uh, verse 21, or back to Matthew 18. Matthew 18, verse 21. Jesus just finishes talking about if your brother sins, go show him his fault, the church discipline passage. In verse 21, Then Peter came and said to him, so now you're getting the context for, for what's coming, how, shall my brother, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say unto you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who has wished to settle accounts of slaves. And now he starts giving a parable to explain what, what, he, just, what he just said. So the why of this parable comes uh, beginning in verse, in verse 21. Matthew 19, look at Matthew 19, 27. Turn over a page or so there, Matthew 19, verse 27. Then Peter answered answered and said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What will there be there for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, You who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. And he goes on. And then, verse 20, I'm sorry, chapter 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers. And talking about the rewards that, that, that are there, the why it was given. Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse. Really long. You Remember Jesus in the middle of the Passion Week? He's going into the temple teaching every day, and then he's leaving the temple, and he's holed up with the disciples. And one night, he goes to the Mount of Olives, and he gives them uh, what's called the Olivet Discourse. And verse 3 of Matthew 24 sets the context for all of it. And he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, and the disciples came to him privately saying, "Tell us when these things will be, when, when is coming. What will the sign of your coming be and of the end of the age?" And then he goes and he gives all kinds of parables. He talks about the coming of the Son of Man. So they ask him a question, he answers it. So whatever those parables mean, in Matthew 24 in the Olivet discourse, they're going to apply to, to those questions. Look at E. Parables are also given in order to evoke a response from the hearers. And the main point, this is vital, the main point is almost always at the end of the parable. So if there's two places that you should pay attention to the parable, it's not all of the details in the parable. The details are important. But you want to pay attention to why the parable was given. What's going on before? Why does Jesus give a parable? Why does he answer in a parable and then pay attention to the end of the parable because almost always at the end of the parable he's going to interpret it for you he's going to tell you exactly what his point is of the of the story so so you don't have to get all wrapped up in you know the the birds that are in the mustard seed are they the you know the gentiles and you know and all of those kinds of uh, of things what's the point of the parable what's the context of why it was given and then Jesus usually gives the point almost always at the at the end. Look at Matthew 13, 49 through 50. Here's the end of the parable of the tares. So it will be at the end of the age. And it'll, it'll sound something like that. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels shall come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will cast them into the furnace of fire and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. point to be learned is don't go on weeding expeditions in the church, or you may often uproot true believers. Um, Matthew 18, 34 and 35. The end of the parable of the unforgiving servant. And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. So shall my heavenly Father also do to you, if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. You hear the, the punchline, the, the point, the interpretation. Matthew 20, verse 16, two more examples. The end of the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. Thus the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Matthew twenty one thirty one. The end of the parable of the two sons. Which one of the or which of the two did the will of his father? So sometimes he, he brings them to the point, he sets them up, he tells them the story, and then he asks a question. And they said the latter, and Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that the tax gatherers and the harlots will get into the kingdom of God before you. That is some pretty strong preaching, isn't it? Especially the people who thought that they were religious and getting into getting into the kingdom. So the main point is almost always at the at the end. So there's some some ways that you can identify parables. There there are some that that are people will call parables that are stories, and there's debates, like Luke sixteen, is the rich man Lazarus? Is that a parable? is it a story because it actually names people which is typically abnormal in a parable but you'll find there's a context a reason that they're given there'll be contrast there'll be sets of them but the point will be at the at the end so let's look at some principles for interpreting parables so how do you interpret them well it's actually not that hard Find the specific problem or situation that the parable is addressing. And now you're using the tools that you've already gathered, the near and the far context. With parables, it's really easy because almost always the far context is is the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Something about what is dawning because the Messiah is now here. He's come. He's the promised one. The far context usually tells you that the parable is within the kingdom theme since Jesus is proclaiming and presenting the kingdom. But the immediate context then tells you the specific situation or the problem that is, that's addressed. And the problem may be stated in the, the introductory question, or in the introduction, like, like with a question, like Matthew 9.14. Why do we and the Pharisees fast often but your disciples do not fast, or fast not? And Jesus gives the parable. The problem may be seen in a in a criticism. Like in Luke fifteen two. Go back to Luke fifteen two. This is probably the one that you know the best. So we'll practice on it. Luke 15, this is a, I don't even know the right word, powerful passage of scripture. Um. Really, the context goes all the way back to Luke 14. And um, it says it happened when, Luke 14:1. it happened when they went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread. So they're having Sabbath lunch. Jesus comes, so they're watching him closely. They're, they're trying to catch him in something. And there in front of him, he knows what they're doing. There in front of him is a man suffering with dropsy, um, swelling. And Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and the Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? He knows what they're doing, so he just preempts it. And they didn't answer, they kept silent. And he took hold of the man, he healed him, and sent him away. And he said to them, which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediate, immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they knew that they would do that, so they couldn't reply to this. And then he began speaking a parable to the invited guests because he noticed how the invited guests had been picking out places of honor and at the table. Saying to them, When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast... Did not take a place of honor. So so first of all, he's invited to this Sabbath lunch by by the you know the the highbrows, and, and he they're watching him, trying to catch him in something, and he just deals with them. He heals the man right in front of them and stumps them. Then he goes to the guests, the people that are the other people there, not the not the people that invited him, not the ones that are that are hosting the lunch. Now he goes to the guests. He's watching them trying to weasel to the To the front in order to to be viewed as something that they're not because someone thinks, ah, they must be important because of where they're sitting. So he tells them uh, basically don't do that. He exposes them. He says, you're going to do that and somebody's going to come along and say, give your place to this man and disgrace you. Verse 11, notice the point of the parable. Here's the parable, point of the parable. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And then he went on to say to the one who had invited him, so now the specific man who invites him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. So now he, he exposes the, the actual host, because The host has invited all these people for for the same purpose. But when you give, in verse 13, a reception, invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind, and you'll be blessed, since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And when one of those were reclining at the table, so now here's a guest who's reclining at the table, heard this, he said, Blessed is everyone who eats bread in the kingdom of God. So Jesus is teaching, he's exposing everyone, and some nodhead in the middle of it says, he thinks he knows what he's talking about, then he blurts out this, this statement. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Oh, he said the kingdom. I'll say something smart about the kingdom. And then Jesus says to this man, exposes this man, but he said to him, The man was giving a big dinner and invited many. And the dinner hour was, he sent out his slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. But they all like began to make excuses. The first said, I bought a piece of land and I've got to go look at it. Please consider me excused. And the other bought five yoke of oxen. Another married Verse 21, And the slave came back and reported to his master that they had uh, all of us to his master. Then the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Now that's a repetition, isn't it? And the slave said, Master, what you have commanded has been done and there is still room. And the master said to the slave, Go into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you that none of these men who were invited shall taste of my, my dinner. So he turns it to the kingdom with this statement. Blessed is one who eats bread in the kingdom of God. Let me tell you who's going to eat bread in the kingdom of God. It's not going to be the, the people that have been invited to the Messiah, like right now, like you all, and you've rejected him, the people that are going to eat bread in the kingdom of God are the spiritual cripples and the lame and the people that have absolutely nothing to offer, and they realize that. That's who's going to be in the Father's house eating his bread. And verse 25, now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned to them and said, and in, in the original, it's like he's walking along, there's this big crowd following him, And it's like he whirls around to them and speaks right to them. And he breaks every church growth rule known to man. He has a giant crowd following him. And he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, and wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters, yea, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Well, well, that's going to draw a crowd, isn't it? And whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. This doesn't say won't be a good one. Cannot be, my disciple. You're not getting in the kingdom. You're not getting in the kingdom unless you understand that you're spiritually crippled and lame and blind. For which one, in verse 28, for which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost? Others, when he lays the foundation, he won't be able to finish saying this man began to build, he was not able to finish, or what king, when he says to meet another king in battle, doesn't first sit down and consider whether he's strong enough? Verse 32, or else which other is far away, sends a delegation asking for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all of his own possessions. Therefore, salt is good, but even salt has become tasteless. If it has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless, either for the soil and for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, who's going to hear that? Luke 15, 1. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. But the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Do you know who listens to a message like that? Do you know who forsakes father, mother, brother, sister, even their own life? Do you know who takes up a cross and gives up anything? They don't care. Life doesn't matter to them anymore. Somebody who realizes that they are a sinner outside of Christ and they're blind and crippled and lame and that they've been invited to an eternal feast. That's who draws near. And that's who hears. And you know who's outside of the kingdom, the ones making the excuses? Well, it's right here. They're doing it. Verse 2, both the Pharisees and the scribes begin to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Who, Who did he tell the parable to? The scribes and the Pharisees that were grumbling. What man among you if he has a hundred sheep? And then he goes through, the parables. And he's explaining to them that this is what God does. He saves sinners. He, he goes after the lost. He, he grants salvation to those who are repentant. And then the reason that the parable for the lost son is longer is because it's a contrast. And the older son... In the field is the Pharisee and the the scribe, and so there is the the context. Look at uh, number two principles for interpreting parables. Look for an introductory question: Why why do we fast? Maybe the problem of. Seen his criticism, both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble. This man receives sinners and eats with them. That doesn't mean that that Jesus didn't have any scruples or morals and he didn't care how anybody lived. These sinners that are coming to listen are acknowledging their need. And just as an oversimplification, you really see Jesus dealing with with, with people in two different ways in the New Testament. Those who are arrogant or religiously arrogant in particular, he kicks them in the teeth. Those who are know their need, um, he lifts them up, shares the gospel with them, but their heart's already prepared to hear it. Look at three. The problem may be seen in a, in a false or wrong attitude, like Matthew twenty one twenty three, when they ask him, by what authority do you do these things? And he gives them a parable to explain his, his authority. Look at B. So to determine the main point of the parable, which answers or addresses the problem or the situation for the, for the, the giving of the parable. This main point is found in several different forms. So why was the parable given? And then what's the main point? The question posed to promote a specific answer, Luke 7:42. We'll turn back to Luke 7:42. ask a question when they were unable to repay he graciously forgave them both so which one of them will love him more can also be a direct conclusion made in the parable like in Matthew 1835 so shall my heavenly father also do to you in if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Now, you might not say, well, whoa, that, that seems pretty serious. Is he talking to Christians? Is he not talking to Christians? What does it mean to forgive in his heart? And you might have to do some, some studying in order to figure all of that out. But, but you know what he's saying, the point of the parable. There could also be an external interpretation of the, uh, of the parable. Like Matthew 15, 15. Peter answered and said to him, explain the parable to us. He ass. And um, that's probably what I would do. Uh, I don't know. Can you fill me in here, Lord? I mean, you've got the Son of God right there. Ask Him the question. There could also be a repetition, a repetition of the main point in several connecting parables. Um, Matthew 24. Remember, that's the Olivet Discourse. And they're asking Jesus, what will be the sign of your coming? When is it going to come? When is the end going to come? So it's all about the coming of Christ. And so you have the main point in in repetition in these several connecting parables. Matthew 24, 43. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time uh, of night that the thief was coming, he would have been on alert. And he would not allow his house to be broken into. Matthew 24, 46. Blessed is the slave whom his master finds so, uh, so when he comes. Matthew 24, 50. The master of the slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and in an hour where when he does not know. Matthew twenty five thirteen. Be on alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. Matthew twenty five forty five. Then he will answer them on the judgment day following his coming, saying, "Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it." Under the under one of the least of these, you did not do it unto me. So to determine the main point, point. and mean, then something else that will help you is the cultural backgrounds, the cultural backgrounds and customs of of, of many parables. Remember, these are things that could happen to explain something, and you're two thousand years removed, so there may be some cultural context there that will that that you need to know. So seek to understand the cultural details. And I think Tim, two weeks ago, maybe, uh, went over some some customs books that will give you some some insight into that. will help you understand how the hearers would have understood Jesus' parables. So like Matthew 25, 1 through through 13, the, the virgins. What are the marriage customs? Why is someone leaving the house at midnight and going to somebody else's house, and what does all that mean? Well, in a Jewish wedding, the bridegroom would leave his home, lead a procession of friends to the the bride's home to receive her, and typically the ceremony was done there, and then they would all go back to the father's house, to the father of the... The bride's house for the for the celebration and the consummation and, and so that's that's what's going on. Um, and so you didn't go to the celebration until the the bridegroom passed by to get the bride and brought her back. That's whenever you you would go and you didn't, you didn't have an internet or texting to say hey he's coming. You got to be ready. And that's Jesus' point. You have to be ready whenever he comes. Um. Turn to Matthew 13:33. It should be 13:33, not 13:13. Um This is one that's often a sticky wicket for people Matthew 13:33 He spoke another parable to them the kingdom of heaven is like leaven which a woman took out and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leavened So what does leaven represent in the bible normally Sin, it's bad, right? But here it actually has a good context. Notice, first of all, it says, he spoke another parable to them. So There's one that precedes it. So let's look back at the one that, that precedes it. Verse 31, And he presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. And, oh, wait a minute. He presented another parable, so you've got to go back even further. So there's a parable that's, it's prior to that. Verse 24. And Jesus presented another parable to them. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> There's a parable prior to this. So this is a series of parables. But they all have the same thing in common. Notice how all of them start. Look at verse 24. Jesus presented another parable to them saying, the kingdom of, he- of heaven is like, or the kingdom of heaven may be compared to. So this is a This is an illustration of the the kingdom of heaven, the way that the kingdom of heaven works, the the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the the way that the kingdom is unfolding now that Christ has has come. Notice he does the same thing in verse 31. He presented another parable to them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this smaller than all the other seeds. But when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes like a tree. So that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. And so what do you know about a mustard seed? If you have faith, the size of the grain of mustard seed move mountains, right? Something really small. That then produces a really giant plant, and so he says the kingdom of heaven is like that. The coming kingdom, the unfolding kingdom, is like that. It looks really, really small right now. It looks like a mustard seed, but I want to tell you, whenever the kingdom comes, when it it's going to grow, the gospel is going to spread, and when it does, it's going to be bigger than all the other plants in the garden. And notice how that is repeated in verse 33. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leaven. What do you know about yeast? It multiplies, and it does so quietly. You can't see it, and it permeates everything, which is why it's used as an illustration for sin. Sin is deceptive. It gets in your heart, and then it just... just just defiles you. Well, here, the same idea. The kingdom is, is quiet. It's, it's coming. Not everyone's beating Christ's door down to flock into the kingdom. This is how it's going to unfold right now. But there's coming a day when everyone's going to, is going to come. How is leaven used? There's an example. I look at number three under C. What did it mean, and why would someone kill the fatted calf, and why would they, they be given a ring in the, the parable of the two sons? Luke fifteen eleven through 32. Remember when the, the prodigal comes home? The father runs to him. He sees him far off. He runs to him. He brace, embraces him. And he tells his servant, kill the fatted calf. and He puts a robe on him and a ring on his finger. Well... There's some significance to that. The, the fatted calf was, was, a, was for a special event. But I think, even more important, the ring. It's the idea of a, of a seal. So you remember that, that that wicked son wished his father dead. He wanted all of his inheritance down, and he left. And, and, and he's, he's out of the family. And now he comes back and he says, I've come to my senses. And slaves eat better than I was eating. And I just want to be a servant. I just want to be a slave. I just want to be one of, your, one of your servants. And the father says, no, you're not a slave. You're, you're a son. You're, you're a brother. And he puts a ring, the ring back on him, that he is a, a full-fledged member of the family. He's a son, again. It's the, the seal of the, of, of the family. So that increases the significance in Luke 15. You can also use cross-references to see if the parable is given in any other gospel or situation. This is where a harmony of the gospels comes in. And the last thing I would say is interpret the details properly. Okay. Um, I, I use the example of taking one out of context, tongue-in-cheek, but, but here's another place where people get in trouble with parables. They allegorize them. They, they, they look at every detail in the parable and think every detail in the parable has to have some spiritual meaning, and it doesn't. So it's, it's not an allegory. Uh, not every detail or main detail of the parable needs to have a spiritual meaning. There's a reason that the story was given. It's just a story to address that problem or that question. And typically at the end of the parable, the, God's going to tell you exactly what He means. So shall it be. Um, what might be the reason for taking it literally as, as a detail with no spiritual comparison is a question you have to answer. Be careful not to turn every parable into an allegory. So here's an example, two examples people have used. Does the fatted, uh, fattened calf which was killed in the parable of the prodigal son represent Christ? Well, it's really tempting, isn't it? I mean, here we are. Jesus is telling this parable. He's going to the cross, and you know, was Jesus sacrificed for our joy? And well, yeah, he was, but that has nothing to do with the fattened calf there um, at all. No, that's not Jesus. That's celebration. It's probably one that's that may hit a little bit closer to home. Does the oil in the parable of the ten virgins represent the Holy Spirit? In Matthew 25, you remember the, the contrast between the, 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 the wise virgins and the foolish virgins? Does that oil there represent the Holy Spirit? And the answer is no. It's just oil. And, and Because the point of the parable is be ready, be prepared. There were some that were prepared and some that weren't prepared. And so don't spiritualize or allegorize or give meaning to things that the text doesn't give, give meaning um, to. Um, so let's practice. This is how we'll close tonight. We'll be done very shortly. Uh, let's look at Luke 12, 16 through 21. Luke 12, 16 through 21. Here's the parable of the rich Fool. Let's put all of this into into practice and just kind of do this together. Luke twelve, sixteen through twenty one. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man was very productive he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? And then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all of my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool. This very night your soul is required of you, and now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So here's the first question What is the situation or need which led Jesus to give this parable? So where would you look for that? Yeah, immediately right before um, look at verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. Now here's a place where it may be helpful to understand some, some cultural things because what we do is we have a will and the will lays out who gets what and, you know, and whatever else. And if somebody doesn't have a will, then the state does that. And same idea here there's a there's a there's a problem but someone in the crowd said to him Jesus is teaching Jesus is, a, is an authority figure so this guy wants Jesus to solve a family dispute about inheritance someone in the crowd said to him teacher tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me probably what's going on here is the the eldest son the 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 older son got the the majority inheritance and a younger one wants it to be divided differently. So he thinks Jesus can see some authority and he can help him. But he said to him, Jesus said to the man, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And then he said to them, so he uses this man's question and what's going on in that man's heart as as a, a way to teach everybody who's listening. Beware and be on guard against every form of greed or covetousness. And notice he says every form. So the first thing I'm doing, I'm listening to that, is going, huh, every form of covetousness, every form of greed. Well, there probably means there are some things that, I mean, I think would be covetous or exhibit greed. And there are other things that that aren't maybe I'm overlooking something, right? I mean, we, we, are, we are really, really good at seeing everyone else's covetousness and greed and, and not our own. So he says every form uses this. And notice what else he says. For not even when one has an abundance, does his life consist of his possessions. So the reason that you should be where of greed and covetousness and focusing on earthly things, is even if you have earthly things, that's, that's not what life's all about. And he told them a parable. And the parable is about a, the land of a rich man who was very productive. So the situation or the need which Jesus gives the parable is, is to guard against covetousness and, and, and greed. What's the main point in in the parable which addresses the the problem or, or, or the need? There's a direct conclusion that's drawn in this parable, isn't it? Verse 21. So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Beware against every form of greed and covetousness, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions, so is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And that, that's the point of the, of the parable. What are some agricultural customs and background that would be helpful? What's well, agriculture? What's the land produce? What's a barn? Why would you tear it down and rebuild it? What, 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 what would you do? Well, here in this this parable, this this man, the land, remember, land's really important. God's the one who brings the rain and helps it produce. So he's not even acknowledging that God's the one that that gave him all of this stuff. And what he's focused on is in is just increasing his his possessions, not using them. And what he doesn't know is this is his last night on earth. That's kind of the. The shaking thing in, in this parable. Think about this man. He's rich. His land's producing. Everything's going his way. It's great. He's 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 got his you know his millions or billions or, or whatever it is, and he doesn't even realize that this is his last night on earth. He's using all of those things for for nothing, and he's not rich toward God. So is the parable number four given anywhere else at the same time, to the same group of people, to meet the same need or problem or situation? So is this parable given anywhere else? I don't think it is. Um, Study Bible typically will tell you if if it is. But this is in the context of the, the Sermon on the Mount. So I think you probably could go back to Matthew 6 and not get the same parable, but you get the same idea. So both Luke 12 and Matthew 6 are, are connected to the Sermon on the Mount. Look at verse 23. Look at what he says. I'm sorry, verse 22. Uh, so is the man who stores up treasure for himself and does not risk toward God. And he said to his disciples, For this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life or what you will eat for your body or what you'll put, put on, for life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the, the ravens, they don't sow reap. That, that's Sermon on the Mount, which wasn't just one sermon, by the way. It's what Jesus is going around preaching. He's going around preaching all, all over the place. And so he's addressed this issue before, but I can't find any, any parallel parable. Maybe you can. Um, what details have spiritual meaning and what don't? There's, there's none. I mean, there's nothing special in this. There's a man, land produces. And does the main point of the parable apply to you personally? Yes, it does. I believe it does. So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Um, when you don't know what your... How long your life is, you can be a fool. So you can practice uh, Hebrews four twelve, but that is the lesson on parables this evening. Next week, we'll look at narrative and we'll probably get into some, I'll use some of those examples I told you about where people have misinterpreted narrative, so we'll get a little spicy next week, show you how people mess things up, build denominations on them, but... Um, Closing thoughts, comments? All right. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word and for tools. To help us rightly and divide it. That's what we desire to do. And so help us to be faithful laborers. And we are so thankful, Lord, that we were blind and crippled and lame. And that while we rejected you, however long you you gave us ears to hear. And now, as sinners, we just draw near to hear you. Um, We long to eat bread in the kingdom of God. We look forward to that day when we're gathered around your table. And we'll be there all because of your grace and the righteousness of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.